Go to any high school in America, you're liable to notice two main physical features, the school itself and an athletic field next to it. It's a powerful image about the link between sports and education in this country, and we're learning more and more about how dangerous that field is, not just in terms of what it can facilitate in the way of physical injuries, but also in the way of academic, intellectual, and emotional injury when you tell kids, especially poor kids, that sports is their ticket to a higher education. So how does that work? How does college education work for Division I athletes? Does it work? Can equal time be paid to both sports and class? Speaking of paid, should college athletes be paid? And how does it work when you're world-class at both education and athletics? Let's learn more with somebody who fits that description, filmmaker and former USC football player, Bob DeMars. Welcome to The Crush. So I know Bob DeMars from my glory days at USC. He admittedly had more glorious days than I did as a defensive end for the Trojans football team and as a student in one of the most storied film production programs on planet Earth. He brought the two together in a way that provides a real public service with his documentary titled The Business of Amateurs. From 1997 to 2001, I played football for three different coaches at USC. And for the most part, it was a dream come true. Bobby DeMars in there has been a recent addition to the starting lineup. More than a decade later, I still have the memories, and I still have some of the injuries. With the money being made in college athletics today, it leaves many questions. I went searching for answers. It's won awards at film festivals and gotten picked up for use by none other than John Oliver, and it's been screened in uh, campuses and communities around the country. There's a lot going on in this movie because there's a lot going on with college athletics. And I don't even want to say that there's a lot going on these days because these issues have been around for a very long time. There are college sports stories in the news every day, it seems, that have nothing to do with the box score. For instance, it wasn't long ago that arguably the most powerful organization at the University of Missouri revealed itself to be the football players. They threatened to not play until the president stepped down due to his tone deafness around Black Lives Matter protests uh, in the wake of Ferguson. And if the football team doesn't play, the school loses at least a million bucks that they have to pay to BYU for forfeiting. And the issue is thrust even more into the national spotlight. And the president did step down, and the team played that Saturday, beating BYU 20-16. to It was a watershed moment. As Bob talks about himself, you've also got the fact that athletes are sustaining lifelong injuries as a result of playing sports in college, leading Bob and others to wonder if the schools should be on the hook for the care needed to address those injuries for their players after college. You got athletes and their families being told that since they're receiving a free education in the form of a full tuition scholarship, and despite the fact that athletes' hard work on the courts and fields of NCAA Division I schools generates millions of dollars for their schools and their coaches and generates bumps in application numbers and alumni donations, not the NCAA or the universities feels like it's the right thing to do to share that revenue in the form of income, any income for their players. Bobby talks about his efforts to get this movie made, drops a few recognizable names, shares trench-level stories of what it's like to be a D1 college athlete, and tells us the kinds of rights that college athletes believe they're entitled to. Fair warning, there's a little bit of swearing in this one. Where are you? Home? I'm at home. Where's home? Home is Calabasas. Well, home is originally Calabasas, but I'm in Camarillo right now. Okay. You've never left Southern California. No need to. We have perfect weather <laughs> and, uh, you know. Perfect traffic. Exactly. Stuff like that. Exactly. I want to just say first, congratulations on making the movie. 
it was it you were at the Portland Film Festival lately um and I came to realize that they had actually used some clips from the movie on last week tonight with John Oliver which is great because I had seen that I had seen that bit that he did on the NCAA, which was ridiculous um, and hilarious, of course, and devastating, as is all the stuff that he does. But, I mean, it's it's got to feel good to be getting some attention for something that I imagine has has been taking you quite a while to put together. So how long have you been working on it? We did a Kickstarter in uh, July of 2013, and uh, we set a goal for 30000 <clears throat> Um to give kind of perspective, the last documentary I did, we shot five days and it cost one hundred fifty thousand. Um, we shot sixty days in twenty cities with this one, and wow. so you know we you raise what you can get on Kickstarter. You know, thirty yeah. was the amount that I felt that you know, hey, if I just had all my friends put in twenty dollars, then we'll be good to go. It doesn't usually really work that way, and um, you know, I definitely had to put in a lot more of my own money to get through post production, and we're still in the yeah. process of clearing photos and going through fair use attorneys and E&O insurance and so there's all these other things that are happening and uh, it's interesting kind of how we started because you know I, I timed it up so it was like three days before my birthday so I was thinking okay you know if if, if I can really milk people on my birthday right and I definitely <laughs> did to a certain degree and so over the first three days we had three thousand dollars so we were on track to reach our goal and then crickets there was yeah uh, <laughs> I mean, literally, I think we had like $20 like that came in over the next week. And uh, so we're 10 days in and we're still at $3,000. And um, a good friend of mine um, named Zach Jerome, who's our publicity director, uh, he was kind of the pep rally. The guy that led the pep rallies at USC after I left. And he was basically started there right after I left. And mm -hmm. uh, he got Matt Barkley to tweet about the project. Oh, wow. And, and you know, he's got you know, hundreds of thousands of Twitter followers. And he, he, he positioned it in a really smart way. He said, um, do you think that college athletes deserve more rights? This documentary does. And it was great because he focused on what the film is. It's about rights. It's not about paying players. Um, yeah, tell me, tell me about that. Tell me, tell me what the movie is about and why, and why you made it. Uh, well, as a former student athlete at USC uh, and somebody that really had to juggle the, the, the the business school, the film school, and football. Um, a lot of times, I felt like an athlete student. I didn't feel like a student athlete, uh -huh. you know. And I've walked away with some injuries that, you know, a lot of people might say, you know, you signed up for those injuries. And uh, I, I can understand that because the inherent risk that comes with the sport, you know, my knees, my neck, my back, some of these long-term injuries, um, you know, that come with colliding with other people. I disagree yeah. when it comes to the head injuries. You know, that's the things and the repercussions that rear their ugly head, you know, down the road from the repetitive blows to the head um, can be devastating. And I don't think any of us signed up for those injuries. It's, How is yours? Uh, well, you're going to have to see the movie. <laughs> I don't want to yeah. much, but uh, there are some issues that have come about in the last couple of years with me. Mm -hmm. You know, the average person wouldn't actually know. Uh, right. You know, I was, I was diagnosed with panic disorder a couple of years ago uh, out of the blue. A lot of people that have panic disorder, it's related to a traumatic event in their life, and yeah. they have triggers for that. Wow. For me, I don't have any triggers. I could just be having a great day driving my car when all of a sudden uh, my mind malfunctions. And I, I hate the name panic disorder because it's such a misnomer. Uh, you know, I don't panic. You know, I, I, I've, I've done live television. I've, you know, spoken to mm -hmm. thousands of people. Uh, yeah, and, and I get played in front of hundreds of thousands. Yeah, and I get nervous like anybody else. But at the end of the day, what happens is you're, it's a malfunction of the, the brain that's, you know, that, that 
you know, harkens back to when we used to be hunted when we were hunter-gatherers, and essentially your brain thinks that you are fearing for your life, and it stops operating normally. The first time it happened to me, I thought somebody had slipped me a, a drug or something. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, the new studies are finding that this is one of the things that happens with a lot of guys, and as athletes, it's very difficult to admit that there's something wrong with what most people associate with your identity. And uh, I thought, you know, we, we definitely talked to some guys that gave us their warts and all, and I, I didn't think I'd be serving the film all the way if I didn't share that part about me and, and ultimately try to try to offer strength to some guys that might be going through this because I know guys that I played with that have this same condition. And uh, what hap- So what happens to you when, when you, when you uh, experience an episode? Well, they don't last more than 20 minutes. They're usually somewhere between 5 and 20 minutes. And what happens is you essentially, your mind stops being able to hold on to a thought and it starts spiraling. There's some physical sensations that come with it. For me, there's a warmness that hits the back of my head. And ultimately, you're kind of, it, it is like having a bad trip. It, it's basically like your mind is, is spiraling out of control. And it's a really uncomfortable situation that you kind of just have to, you know, anyone that's experienced it, they'll know what I mean because it's really hard to describe it to people that don't. Mm -hmm. Because most people think that it's something external that's happening to them and they're responding to some external stimuli that's making them freak out. Like, oh oh my God, I just almost got a car accident or oh, there's a guy with a knife or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Because of that, you know, a lot of times you know, people just misassume that it's something that's related to something that's happening to you, but it's not anything that happens to me. It's just yeah. like like externally, it's all it's a malfunction of the brain. So like, wow. I was sitting actually in a meeting with J- Jeremy Renner's company. We were pitching something, and uh, it, my mind just started spiraling, and the room got long, and I was started sweating profusely, and I was just trying to. I didn't know what was happening. I, I wanted to run out of the room, and just because it was so uncomfortable. And, uh, you know, once, once I figured out what, what had happened to me and I, I, you know, kind of sought some help and I got on some medication that basically stays off the uh-huh. attacks once they start so they don't peak out and turn into something more um, uncomfortable. So I'm yeah. on medication for a year now. It's not anything that's really changed the way I think, which is great. Yeah. It doesn't affect me personally, but it does, it does stave off the attacks. And uh-huh. it's just a really uncomfortable feeling. So... You know, there's just a lot of things like that happened during filming. You know, we, we really set out to make a film about the NCAA and the hypocrisy of the NCAA, and we did that. Um, but, you know, we really discovered that this was about rights, and this was about academic, medical, and the financial rights that most players should have. Yeah, talk about that a little bit. What are, what's your idea about the rights that student-athletes have currently, and what should change and in, in, in which, in which areas of their, of their lives you see the change being most helpful, most meaningful? Uh, well, medically, since, you know, we're talking about head injuries, I think there's a lot of things that schools could be doing that they're not doing. Uh, you know, it'd be great if, if schools, uh, committed to the long-term health of athletes for the injuries they sustain in their sport. Uh, I think that that would be a great move for schools to do. Nobody's really done that yet. I think, I think mainly because they're worried about the liability involving the repercussions of, of, you know, the long-term repercussions of the head. Who's advocating for, I mean, obviously your film is, is, is in, in itself an advocate for the, for these ideas. I mean, are there people that are advocating for these changes to be made to, to, to universities? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, the social consciousness has really shifted on this topic and, and, you know, Ramogi Huma, who's in our film, 
uh, was the guy that sparked the, the um, Northwestern unionizing uh, with Kenny Coulter. Uh, he was somebody we started talking to, you know, six months before we did our Kickstarter. He was he was really one of the only guys. Him and Scott Ross, the linebacker out of USC, were the only guys we were talking to. And uh, he's been a, probably the the number one player's advocate, and he's been doing it for more than a decade. And um, he's he's a big dog now. I mean, now he's mm-hmm. become the face uh, for this movement in a big way. So mm-hmm. we have him, you know, and, and I've learned a lot really from him. I mean, he, you know, I, I feel like I got my master's degree, you know, in this topic, uh, making this film. But he's he's he, he has his doctorate. Uh, he's been yeah. a long time, and he's he's definitely the most knowledgeable guy I know on the subject. So the kinds of things that he's advocating for then are these are are, are medical rights and 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 what and you mentioned a couple of others and, and the other thing medically is is trying to minimize the the impacts that guys are having in practice and getting independent right. you know counsel on the sideline you know medical help on the sideline that are looking after these players and aren't connected to the coaches. Um, okay. The, the financial aspect is really uh, a couple of things. One is covering the gap in cost of attendance. Uh, it's that you know the average player lives below the poverty line. A lot of people think that they're privileged you know, players that just, you know, have everything. So that's something, I mean, the average college player lives below the poverty line. 80% of college athletes live below the poverty line. And, uh, I was no different. I mean, I, I didn't want to ask my parents for help, even though they could help me, but you know, I I took toilet paper rolls out of the athletic department, you know, training table, I would uh, stack up all my meals. And, and so I would be able to eat the next day. And for the guys that didn't come from anything, they couldn't, get any help from home. I mean, there's no wonder why guys take money from agents. They take it in order to survive. And and ultimately, they create a black market by not um, giving these guys the money they need just for the basic cost of living. So by the time I graduated, I had $15,000 in credit card debt. This wasn't, you know, taking girlfriends out to dinner. This was like, you know, getting food and putting gas in the car. This was your basic necessities that you needed just to survive. And um, so, you know, some schools are starting to cover that, you know, the, the cost of attendance gap. There's some uh, leagues, I think the Pac-12 is one of them, where they finally increased stipends so that guys could actually get by and uh, ultimately, um, you know, they, not, not make a living, but, you know, I mean, you're putting sometimes 80 hours a week into your sport. And if you were to actually calculate, you know, you're actually making half of what minimum wage is, even with the increase in money. Um, and I personally don't think there's anything wrong with players making money off of their likeness. You know, the, the Olympic athletes um, were originally amateurs, but that reform with Prefontaine in the late 70s really changed everything. And now you athletes can have sponsorship. They can make money. They can do things to survive. And I think athletes have a short period of time where they can actually uh, make money. And a lot of these guys aren't going to go pro. Uh, and the ones that do, they should be thousanders before they're millionaires. What do you think is the What do you think is the main is the barrier between that happening right now? Because I, I see so many people in, uh, you know, the Division One athletic world just really digging in their heels on this subject of, in particular, paying athletes. Um, you know, most recently, the president of Notre Dame. Right. Uh, you know, came in, out in an article in the New York Times saying that he didn't feel any kind of moral obligation to pay athletes. You know, what do you think is keeping them from from considering even paying them a little bit? Because I think one of the things that I'm sure that your your film does really well, and uh, have heard other people talk about uh, Richard Sherman in particular is one of my favorites. Talk about the fallacy of uh, actually getting you know uh, an education while you're there, um, essentially working full time as an athlete. 
Uh, I mean, that's a great question. You know, there's really two things driving it. One is the sports culture. Um, you know, people want to believe in this purity. They want to believe that amateurism has a pure element to it. And if all these coaches and administrators believe in that, then they should be amateurs too. Um, but the reality is, is they want to keep all the money. And, and, and that's the other thing. See, all the people that are advocating not paying players, they don't want to take away all the money that's coming in that they've already earmarked for bigger and better salaries for themselves and for bigger and better stadiums and facilities. So they've already spent the money. There's a $1.5 billion of new revenue being generated every single year through college athletics, and they want to use it for that purpose. And, you know, in any other walk of life, you can get your value. It's a very American concept to get your value. Uh, but as an athlete, that doesn't work, you know, and, and the average scholarship, you know, is $15,000 a year when you look at um, what your scholarship is when the actual value of football players is about $150,000 a year value. The average basketball player is worth a quarter of a million dollars per year. So, yeah, there is a major discrepancy, you know, between, um, you know, what they're getting and what they're actually worth. And we talk about the discrepancy really to highlight the people that are taking the money. And, you know, the Notre Dame president, he, he said something about if everybody went to paying athletes, they would do that they would essentially become an intramural league, I guess, uh, and and he would get fired. I guarantee it. Okay, there's no way that the university would stand for somebody at the top like that. The board would get rid of him because football drives and basketball and these revenue sports they drive fundraising at universities. Okay, when Texas A&M, uh, you know Johnny Heisman, you know Johnny Manziel won the Heisman, uh, they they had a like triple increase in their fundraising. They had almost a billion dollars in fundraising, which was three or four times what they had done before. And they attributed it to joining the SEC and the excitement of that. But I guarantee if he didn't win the Heisman, that would have never happened. Well, and it's really, I mean, it's just, it's sexy too. I mean, I, you know, I, I, in my little 17 year old pea brain, when I was applying for colleges, you know, I applied to four schools, which is, you know, probably 5% of the amount of schools kids apply to these days. And USC was the one I really wanted to go to on the, and, and I remember very clearly thinking to myself, it's because I want to have a football team that I can root for, for the rest of my life. You know what I mean? And be affiliated <laughs> with, with that idea. And, you know, there's, uh, uh, I'm sure when schools have successful, I mean, I go to high schools out in, here in, in Long Island and I see kids wearing Oregon Duck jerseys, uh, you know, and, and that never used to be a thing. <laughs> you know, now people are actually thinking about going to the University of Oregon. And it's not because they have any idea of their academic programs. It's because they have the coolest looking <laughs> jerseys yeah. and the Heisman football or in the Heisman trophy. Well, they call that the Flutie effect. Because in 1983, when Boston College threw that Hail Mary against Miami to win um, that big game, uh, I think it was the national title, was it the national title? Uh, to win that game, it, it put Boston College on the map. People didn't even know that school existed. And so mm -hmm. what happens when you have that awareness? USC is a great example, okay? Um, the, the, the winning that Pete Carroll had and the dynasty he created Okay, I mean, I was my last year was Pete Carroll's first year, so we counted essentially for 80% of his career losses. But after that, <laughs> I mean, it was BCS championship, BCS championship. That was all we did yeah. every year for about eight years, right? And yeah, what happens yeah. is with that visibility, you increase the number of applicants to your school. And people look at it as a short-term gain. You know, maybe you're looking at a 3 4% increase in academics by being able to pick from the brighter and brighter students. But extrapolate that over eight years, and that's exponential growth. 
So, you know, my SAT, which was like a 1350 on the 1600 scale, Damn. You know, top 10%. Right? You know, at the time, I was in the business scholars program. Now, I don't know if I would. I'd be kind of right in the middle ground. And, and it's, you know, USC is on par now with UCLA. They're trying to become a West Coast Ivy. And, um, and, they're, and they're doing really well at it. And, and you, you have to look at the, the winning that they did under the Pete Carroll as, as not the only thing, but definitely one of the catalysts for being able to right. increase their academics over that period. Which makes so degree what, valuable, my degree more valuable. It, 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 it makes the alumni rally more. It makes them want to donate more. So once again, it feeds back into the system. Right. And, uh, you know, one of the things I'm going to do, I want to, I want to play the, the Richard Sherman clip because I think he explains it really, really well. Great question. I really appreciate that question. Um, no, no, I don't think college athletes are given enough time to really take advantage of, of the free education that they're given. Um, and it's frustrating because... Because a lot of people say, you know, get, get upset with student athletes and say that they're not focused on school and, and they're not taking advantage of, of the opportunity they're given. I would love for, for a regular student to, to have a student athlete schedule during the season for just, just one quarter or one semester and, and, and show me how you balance that. You know, show me how you would, you would schedule your classes when you can't schedule classes from, from 2 to 6, six o'clock on any given day. You know, show me how you're going to get all your work done when you when after you know you get out at 7:30 or so you got to test the next day you're dead tired from practice and you still have to study just as hard as everybody else every day and get every, all the same work done you know most of these kids are 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 done with school you know done with class by three o'clock you got the rest of the day to do do as you please you know and you you're sitting here you may <clears throat> excuse me um you may spend a few hours studying um then you may spend a few hours at the library checking out books and just doing casual reading then you may go hang out with friends and have a coffee when you're a student athlete, you don't have that kind of time. You wake up in the morning, you have weights at this time. Then after weights, you go to class. And after class, you go, you go maybe try to grab you a quick bite to eat. Then after you get your quick bite to eat, you go straight to meetings. And after meetings, you got practice. And after practice, you got to try to get all the work done you, you had throughout the day. You got from your, from your lectures and, and, and from your focus groups. Um, and those aren't the things that people focus on when talking about student athletes. They, they're, they're upset when a student athlete says they need a little cash. Um, well, I can tell you from, from experience, I had negative 40 bucks in my account. And usually my account was in a negative more times than it was in a positive. You know, you got to make decisions on whether you get gas for your car or whether you get the meal for the day. You know, what? you got one of the two choices. Um, and people think, oh, you, you, you're on scholarship. They pay for your room and board. They pay for your, your education. But to, to their knowledge, you're there to play football. You're not on scholarship for school. And it sounds crazy when a student athlete says that, but that's, that, those are the things coaches tell them every day. You're not on scholarship for, for, for school. And, you know, luckily I was, I was, I was blessed to go to Stanford and, and a school that was, that was primarily focused on academics. So it was, it was a blessing. It was a, it was a little bit better. Um, as, but Jim, as Jim Harbaugh would attest, we were also there for football. Um, but there were still guys like Andrew who, who majored in engineering, um, incredibly tough role to take when you're when you're football because a lot of the classes conflict with with your time as a football player you know you you have an engineering class from 2 to 3 30 there's no way you can do both you can't go to meetings and take your engineering class from 2 to 3 30 so what do you do you know what do you do do you switch your major or do you tell your coach hey i got an engineering class from 2 to 3 30 and and i have to go to that that's a conflict of interest that's that's what people don't realize but 
it's not it's not something that that hurts the the bottom line in a lot of people's lives. So I don't think it'll be something that'll be addressed. But I appreciate the question. Do you agree with what he sounds like? You have you you do agree with what he has to say as far as just not having the time to actually be an academic while you're in college and what was it like for you being a college athlete or as you put it and you know an athlete student uh you know basically every day you get up about five thirty. you uh then go work out from six to eight um you know you, you go lift weights and then you go to class from eight to twelve and then you go back in and you bring your lunch into the coach's office and you watch game tape for about an hour and a half voluntarily i put that in air quotes because uh it's not really voluntarily. <laughs> and uh, my D-line coach was Ed Ogeron, probably one of the most deplorable human beings, you know, I've ever been around. Wow. <laughs> so he was, you know, hey, you know, some of the Trojan fan base, I think, wants to believe that, oh, look at what he did. We beat Stanford. Of course, you know, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to get into some of the really dark things that he did um, just because it would, it would, you know, stir up some issues. Okay. Uh, but one of the things I, I, I have publicly stated, you know, he used to cuss me out before I had to leave practice early to go to class. And this was during spring football, when we're not even in season. And I had a I had an advanced business statistics class that was at six o'clock. And if you were late once or you missed a class once, your grade dropped an entire grade for the class. Oh, you were at, you were five minutes late. Sorry, your A is now a B. Like that's how hardcore this professor was. So I was running. You know, I would miss the last ten minutes of practice. I would run to the locker room. I wouldn't even shower, and I would show up all sweaty. Like right, like seconds before six o'clock, um, and and I, and you know, Coach Ogeron would would call me a motherfucking pussy and everything up and down, and he would come up under his breath and he would, you know, tell me I don't want it and just tell me all these horrible things. And you know, I was never on the list for missing class. Uh, the reality is, is that I did miss class because I had to sleep at some point, and if I knew I could get an A in a class that wasn't applicable to something I was interested in, I would skip it and go take a nap, and that was just a survival aspect. But nobody ever checked my class because I had the highest GPA on the team. And so there wasn't anybody checking to see if I was going to class because I wasn't, um, you know, I didn't have any grade issues. So, you know, your day is scheduled uh, by athletics. And when I got there, I told them I wanted to be in the business and the film school. And they told me that I couldn't be in the film school because all of the core classes were during football. So, and which, which is why, you know, these athletes are employees. Your whole day is dictated by your sport. And, and, um, I, I eventually applied to the, to the film school without telling them, uh, and I just did it anyways, and and decided to um, look out for my own interests instead of the school's interests. And so there's various capacities that they put the sport before they put um, your your scholastic. And so we're talking, yeah, the average football player is doing 44 hours a week in their sport. They're, when you're traveling to Notre Dame, I mean, you're leaving Thursday night, uh, you don't come back until Sunday. And you're doing football that whole time. Even on the plane, you're doing tests about, you know, the name of the offensive lineman. I don't know how that really helps us. But, uh, you know, you're doing all these things that are coordinated by athletics. And and ultimately, that takes up your time. I mean, March Madness is right in the middle of midterms, okay? And, they, you know, their, their big argument was before not doing football playoffs was, oh, it's right during finals. And that was just really in order to keep the deal that they had going with BCS. That was related to money. That wasn't even related to academics. But they use that as the smokescreen, as oftentimes the NCAA does. Mm-hmm. They want to say that this is about academics. This is not about anything professional. 
um, or that these aren't employees, that these are students. Well, then how come we see what happened in North Carolina where they created a whole system of fake paper classes built around African-American studies, right, which is essentially uh, the study of oppression and overcoming oppression, and they failed to see the irony of forcing kids into that subject and then not teaching them that subject, wow. mostly African-American kids, and, and papers that they didn't even write. You know, Rashad McCants, uh, who was on the 2005 national championship team, uh, he told us that he would just show up and there would be somebody that had his paper there for him or they would just give him the answers to the test. Yeah. And so what happens is, you know, a lot of these guys aren't academically, academically up to par. And, and there's, there's resentment in the student body sometimes for that because they feel like, you know what, they're taking a spot that somebody else could take. And the reality is, is the schools know the academic level of these kids. Okay, when you come from a lower socioeconomic background, you don't have the same advantages over the summer. And, you know, after, by the time they get in the middle school, they're a grade behind. By the time they're in high school, they're two grades behind. And so, you know, you have these guys that aren't academically up to par to even be a college student. That's, that's why the jock stereotype exists. You know, there's, there's, you know, smart people and smart athletes that are in college, and, and there's not so, you know, smart, or I, I guess, not, not smart, but, you know, they don't have the academics. And the people that aren't athletes and don't have the academics aren't in college. So the only people that technically aren't ready for college are some athletes. And so if you come to the school and you pan out athletically, if, if you, you know, end up being, doing an amazing job athletically, they'll find a way to keep you eligible. Mm-hmm. Whether it's sign you for these paper classes the way North Carolina did, or come up with a system of cheating, or have the tutors writing the papers, or getting their girlfriends to write the papers. Yeah. Like, guys will find a way to survive. But if you don't pan out athletically, there's a lot of schools that will use that academic excuse to get rid of a player. And I think that's one of the rights you know, academically that I think is, I think that's wrong because the school knew what level this guy was in. Mm-hmm. And the problem is, is there's no remedial soft step up for these guys. Right. Um, you know, at Berkeley, they, um, you know, we were talking with uh, the former associate chancellor there and Kirsten Cummins, who was a, um, a national championship rower there. And she worked in the academic center with the athletes. And, you know, the special admits in Cal, um, are in the 500s in their SAT, um, you know, math, critical reading, and writing subjects. They're 100 points below the average uh, population that's getting accepted in the school. The athletes that are on the lower tier are in the 400s, okay? So essentially you're saying that some of our athletes are 100 points below our special admits that come into the school, and they're just tossing in the frying pan and seeing what happens. There's no soft step up for these guys. See, now I remember when I, you know, because my SAT scores were markedly lower than yours, Bobby. And so uh, I I did, however, uh, you know, make my way into USC through some grace of some deity looking down upon my situation and uh, and also getting to meet, uh, you know, guy who's currently my boss, who was my admissions counselor at USC. You know, we became good friends. I think he recognized maybe I had some potential in me and could do good work at USC. But I was a conditional admit, and I had to go into the you know whatever the study skills class was with uh, a lot of the uh, a lot of the athletes. You know, and it was it was me and like um, you know uh, baseball players and football players in that class. You know, and that was sort of a study skills class. And I I don't know if it helped me or not. You know, I think I was just trying to kind of get out of that class as fast as I could. But then I also worked part-time as a work-study in the student-athlete academic services um, as a supervisor. Okay, that was my job. And my job as a supervisor was to manage the little check-in list. 
Um, you know, you had to walk up to that desk down there, sign your name, sit at a table and do whatever, and then sign your name out. And that amount of time you were there counted as your sort of supervised study hours. And that office did get into some trouble for, um, you know, writing papers for people and they lost some scholarships and things because there were some tutors, some athletes were turning in some work that some tutors had clearly done and stuff like that. And so it, it just, I saw firsthand that, you know, this, they, they, there, it seemed to me to be kind of almost like this shell system that's in place. It's like they, they have something that's there, but it didn't seem to me to be really you know, while it was cool for me to be able to, to, to say that I, you know, breathed the same air as, you know, Carson Palmer and Troy Palomalu while they were there, right? And, and I was not on the football team. Uh, it didn't look like it was necessarily that there was a lot of hardcore studying being done in there. Yeah, well, it's difficult when, you know, like, hey, you're getting up at 530, you're, you're, you're going, you're working out, you're going to class, you're watching film, then you're practicing, you know, and then meetings from 2 till 630, you eat your food, and then you have to go into the study table. I mean, you've already had you've already wiped out by that point. Yeah, yeah. And, and you're, you know, there's a lot of mental clutter that happens at the end of the day, and you're exhausted, and sure. you have to get up five thirty the next day, and you still are trying to like, you know, like go hit on some girls or do something, right? So a lot of guys be a, be a college content. student, right? And and it's it's really you know because of all that stuff because sports are are, are put on the front burner. Uh, Ultimately, a lot of guys that sometimes do come in with, um, you know, I knew some guys that that were really smart and had a lot of, you know, academic prowess and and potential. And ultimately, the system kind of wore them down, and then they just started doing what they needed to get by, uh, you know. And and you it's know, they're, like they're really I, under a microscope. I mean, you know, the athletes are under a microscope like no other student is on a college campus. I mean, they're under a microscope from, you know, especially if they're talented, you know, there's a there's a, a national spotlight that they're under, you know, they're under the, the, the watchful gaze of the coaching staff, uh, right. you know, the, all of the students. I mean, everybody is sort of staring at these guys, especially if they're, you know, sort of the rock stars. I mean, it's like you can't, you don't have a lot of room to be sort of comfortable it seems from that angle as well. I think there's a lot of vulnerability to athletes on a certain level too. You know, I remember one time I was walking with my girlfriend, you know, we got in a fight and she was crying and, you know, DPS stopped and, That's the you know, Department they, of Public Safety, the Department of Public Safety, they're basically the campus police. Right. And, um, you know, they, they asked me my name. The second thing they asked me was if I played football. And the third thing they did was they handcuffed me while they, I, they put they handcuffed me on the car and they basically sequestered her um, for 45 minutes while I'm in cuffs in front of all my neighbors and my friends and tried to convince her that I'm beating her and that they're going to find marks on her body and all these horrible things and and it's just it was really awkward perspective because you know there are some things about you know athletes that a lot of people don't understand you know I, I got accused of plagiarism six different times and and. Everybody would get their paperback. You think me. because it was too good? Oh yeah. They didn't believe a football player could have. Right. They didn't think. You know, there had been some academic fraud the year before I got there uh, in the tutoring department, and there was an assumption that I didn't write my paper, and I wrote every single one of my papers. And and so there's the, the flip side of that. Uh, so a lot of people don't realize that athletes are vulnerable in different ways too. And yet. This is the this is the dream of millions of little kids all over the country, right? Um, is to 
make it to that point and to make it to you know become a professional athlete because it's it's most recently been you know I thought really really well explored but glamorized nonetheless and like ballers I thought that was a you know that was fun but uh also touched this much on the on the on the head injury issue you know touched on the losing all your money uh due to poor financial management issue and everything. But people really want this life, you know, and it seems like if I go back and I and I look at the folks that, that you interviewed in your movie, they they don't look terribly happy, you know. They um and, and I just wonder how would you how would you advise somebody that's thinking about going into a, a program like the one that you did at USC football wise? I mean, would you recommend this? Would you say, listen man, you're better off if you do something else? You know, I get asked the question a lot, you know, would I, would I do it all again? And, um, you know, a lot of people don't believe me. The reality is I wouldn't. Um, I, I wish I had the opportunity to be selfish about my studies and um, look at it in that capacity. I, I never really had a pro mentality, um, which most of these guys, from the time they're playing Pop Warner, they think that they're going to play pro. And, you know, some of the things, like I said, you know, the panic disorder, some of the things that have reared their ugly head. Uh, I don't know if it's going to get worse. I don't know what might be down the line, but knowing what I know now, actually, I wouldn't do it again. And the only reason that I would do it again is with the hope that this film um, plays a significant role in maybe in helping other players that are going through some of the things that I'm going through or educate them so that they can you know, take care of themselves more or force some positive change for the school. Um, but if it wasn't for this film and what this film could be, I wouldn't do it again, as crazy as that sounds. So, you know, if an athlete's coming into a school, um, you know, because, you know, I, 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 didn't, I didn't wear Reebok stuff because we had a Nike deal. You know, I didn't know how the rules worked. You know, I was just ready to play by the rules. And the athletes seem to realize that they have more power than they realize. Um, you know, they, they could stand up. And the, the thing is, we, we've got these athletes, there's a revolving door, and by the time they're in the pros like Richard Sherman and you, you realize what system you came from and all the people that are basically making money off the backs of athletes and, and they're putting their bodies on the line um, for the school. Um, by the time you realize that, you're out. And a lot of guys, I think, need to be educated about the rights that they do have and the rights that they should have. Um, you know, Before every year started, you're sat in a room and you sign all this paperwork. Uh, I guarantee part of that paperwork now is you know, you realize that these head injuries might cost you and you're essentially accepting that risk and they're making them well aware of that. And you're in there for about an hour and a half signing all these documents. You know, you, 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 there's probably you, no lawyers in the room with you or anything, right? Helping you understand. Oh, there's, this no lawyer. there's no lawyer in the room. It's just the head of football operations. And, uh, and it's a pretty quick process. You know, nobody's reading anything, but I used to read everything. I wish I saw some of the documents because uh, you have to name a beneficiary uh, if you die. And at the wow. time I was playing, it was 150000 So if I died from football, you know, my sister was going to get 150000 um, They itemized body parts. So if you lose a finger, it's like $6,000. Uh, so there was different things that were very morbid uh, when you were reading them that offered a little bit of perspective if you were actually reading it. Wow. Yeah. I mean, and yet it's probably, I mean, I would imagine that it's, I mean, that, that was one of the things that I thought. USC did really well even so I really really I wanted to be in the film production program you know and and that that's what I thought I wanted to do right was was to go and become a movie maker and I didn't get into that program but you know I tried a few times and and they they did a really really good job I thought of 
of of like you know creating this sort of dreamscape of a future for you if only you're here you know if only you're in this program um then just just you wait and see what's going to happen to you you're going to be the next steven spielberg you know and i would imagine it's 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 not that far off from uh the line that recruits get from anybody that'll listen to them or that, that that they can talk to about um you know what to expect if you're an athlete at usc you know you'll have the entire world uh at your fingertips and you'll be the next Troy Polamalu or, you know, whatever. Yeah, you reminded of it, you know, in the decals and, and great Trojans that are all over the walls, everywhere you go, um, that, you know, you could be the next, you know, like you said, Troy Polamalu. And it, it's interesting, though, because, you know, I, I went to USC, you know, I, I, had, I was lucky enough to have a choice to either go to Harvard, Stanford, or USC. Wow. And ultimately, you know. To play I, football? Right, and and Harvard would have been like I don't know they would have given me like a fifty or seventy five percent grant because they don't do full scholarships, and uh, Stanford. So it really came down to Stanford and SC just because I didn't want to go all the way to the East Coast, uh, and I did want to play football for a big school. Yeah, and Stanford obviously had the business school that had more prowess, but and and USC had the football program that had more prowess uh, at the time. And they're both you know <laughs> kind of off each other. We'll see what happens this weekend. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of great things about being an athlete. And, you know, one of the things that you were saying was there's a lot of, there was a lot of guys in the trailer that look like they're really sad. And, you know, there are some really sad elements to the film. And there's also a lot of uplifting films. There are some bright spots. We try to be as objective as possible. There are some schools that are doing the right thing. But ultimately, every athlete that we interview that's in the film loves their school, mm-hmm. including myself. Okay. Sure. And, um, you know, Kirsten Hexton, the rower from Berkeley, makes a great point in the film. She says, you know, that's what we do with our loved ones and our family and our friends and things that we love is we push them to be better. And that's what this film is. It's we're, we're not admonishing, you know, I, I don't think USC looks bad in the film. I mean, ultimately, I mean, there's some times we talk about that, the way they spend money and other schools spend money. But ultimately, I mean, I think USC looks great because I'm a Trojan and I do believe I'm on the right side of history. And, and you know, this is a Trojan filmmaker that made this and I think it's something that USC should be proud of. And, you know, it would have hurt me to know that, you know, that they're not behind the film. But at the end of the day, um, look at what they created, you know. Yeah. Are you tr- are you working to get it shown on campus? I'd love to do a screening at USC. I have some screenings. You know, there's a coalition of about 50 professors from across the nation that have banded together uh, to support college athletes' rights. And, uh, you know, we've got professors at Michigan and Colorado and Purdue uh, in Berkeley and a lot of schools that want us to come and screen the film. So um, hopefully, maybe that's the sequel. You know, the, this first film was really about visibility, and the second film might be about accountability, uh, and and you know, praising the schools that are doing the right thing and shaming the schools that aren't. Um, and uh, I mean, when we set out to make this film, like I said, we we really did set out to change the system, and hopefully, you know, we'll be part of the zeitgeist in right now. We're you know the public perception has really shifted uh but i mean i spent nine months creating a health plan um with one of the top people in the industry that could actually do this and um ultimately we couldn't get a company to adopt it because of the ambiguity the cost related to head injuries mm-hmm. so um but we we you know we actually estimated it would only cost somewhere between one to three million dollars a year to cover a thousand student athletes that would cover the walk-ons as well and everybody from every sport for the next 60 years based upon the injuries they sustained in the sport that year. 
Um, so that's not something that's in the film. Just we didn't know how to position it. So, you know, we weren't able to follow through with it. Um, but I, you know, I do hope that we can get some protections in place for these guys at the end of the day. And I hope that this film can be a catalyst for change and spark um, change, at least be a part of the movement. Who do you most hope sees it? Uh, athletes and their parents are, are who I hope sees it the most, but also college sports fans. You know, one of the things that I, I don't get into as much, but I, I wish I could get into a little deeper, uh, as I was talking about before, is the sports culture. Um, you know, when, when I, I did a Time Magazine article uh, when I was raising money for the Kickstarter, because once Barkley tweeted about it, the press went all over the place, and that's ultimately, it was, it was Barkley's tweet was why we raised the money. And uh, I did an article for Time Magazine, and I remember it was the same day that Edward Snowden came out, and it was on the cover of Time.com, and it's, you know, it's like Edward Snowden that said, I can never go home again. And right underneath it was an article that said, ex-USC player says, coach motherfucker for going to class. And it was a picture of Ed Ogeron screaming, right? <laughs> and and if, if you read the article, the article's not that bad, okay? It's a lot of things that we were talking about. But because, you know, they, they created kind of this clickbait scenario where it made it seem like I'm a player that was just there and that's what's happening at the school right now. And uh -huh. that's what's happening at the school right now. Uh, and I did not get a lot of friendly messages from that. Uh, you know, there were some really diehard Trojans that were uh, essentially, you know, saying I'm going to die young and, you know, really horrible things. And wow. And five bucks to be in my Facebook inbox. And um, so it was not a pleasant experience to kind of go through that. But yeah. it definitely it definitely showed me that there's some people that, um, you know, sports is like a religion. You know, if you yep. if you somebody, their religion, you know, or their God is, isn't real, um, they, they really react to it in a, in an aggressive way and and sports has become like a religion and to, they want to believe in this purity they want to believe uh, that it's better the way the system is they want to believe all the administrators and coaches because those are the ones who are getting paid the money <laughs> they want to believe all of that and I think you know the curtain is finally being lifted and people you know I think you know when Napier said you know there's nights where we don't have enough to eat you know when before the March Madness tournament about a year and a half ago. Um, you know, those types of statements are resonating with people because the discussion of paying players and when Barkley tweeted about the project, every article that came out was Matt Barkley thinks players should be paid. I mean, he went through some heat. He didn't say that at all. He didn't even say he believed in rights. He just asked the question, do you think mm -hmm. college athletes should have more rights? Mm -hmm. Here's a documentary that does, mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, shows how smart that kid is. But ultimately, you know, journalism has been about over sensationalizing things. Um, in order to get clicks and eyeballs. Right. And, um, you know, we tried not to do that in the film. You know, we tried to use testimonials of actual athletes. And I think one of the greatest things about our film is, you know, even about 16 of the 20 interviews we have in the film are student athletes, either as testimonials or as experts. Ramona Shelburne, who's, um, you know, the, the beat reporter for Lakers, and Kobe's go to interview, uh, was a softball player at uh, Stanford. Uh, Dr. Cantu, the, the main brain doctor in the country, played baseball at Berkeley. Um, Mary Willingham, the whistleblower at North Carolina, she was a, she was a Division II swimmer. Everybody, pretty much except for our Olympics expert, um, Dr. Ann McKee, um, who was another of our brain doctors, and um, Andy Schwartz, who was our economist, was a, a former student athlete. And, you know, obviously I was a former student athlete, and behind the camera we tried to infuse as much of that as possible as well. Uh, our composer of the film was a pitcher out of Princeton. Uh, the animation 
that is done in the film is from a football player out of uh, the University of Oregon State. Um, our end credits song, we had an original end credits song called uh, Won't Back Down, which is on iTunes right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was an original song that was written for the film uh, by a wrestler out of Minnesota who lost his scholarship when he released the song on iTunes under his own name. Oh, wow. Because the NCAA owns your name. So we've infused uh, in front of the camera and behind the camera with student athletes as much as possible, ultimately because I believe that that's where the credibility lies. You know, um, there, there's only so many commentators that are out there. You know, Brian Gumbel didn't play sports, but his show's done a lot of great things for awareness about college athletes. And, and a lot of the New York Times writers haven't either. Uh, but not, not to take away from the things that they've done, because they've been at the forefront of this movement. Uh, but I really felt when we were making the film, it was important to put as many student athletes as possible into the film to offer that element of credibility. It, it's a film about student athletes by student athletes, ultimately. Wow. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing it. Um, where is the best place for people to stay up to date on when it might be showing up in their town? Uh, well, we have a we have a website, thebusinessofamateurs.com. They can go there. They can you know see kind of updates. We're just getting that up and running, so we're trying to you know get our reviews that we received from the Portland Film Festival and some other the other news things that have happened along the way. We've been talking for an hour, and it's been really really good stuff and I thank you a lot for taking the time to talk to us and for making the movie it's really important Uh, I hope a lot of people see it I hope a lot of kids see it in particular it's really really hard I think for kids at this stage of their development you know to really think too far into the future about you know the consequences of the decisions that they're going to make no matter what they are but you know something with the sort of sex appeal and allure of of uh you know division one college athletics that's a powerful that's a powerful shade um you know uh, that uh, can cover up some of the things that your movie is uh is is bringing out into the light so um i really hope a lot of people check it out and congratulations on all the hard work man well thank you very much and you know thank you for giving us a platform and you know ultimately you know the fans and the alumni um, you know, these are your athletes. These are your teammates. These are your fellow alumni that we're looking out for. And so, um, you know, any support that anybody can help show the film, uh, hopefully we'll find a distributor soon and everybody can see it and uh, we can saturate as many minds as possible with this information. Right on. Okay, so as an athlete that went to college on scholarship, Bobby might be the envy of everyone like me who might still be paying off undergraduate student debt. And in many ways, he landed on his feet, right? But not without seriously jacking up his knees, back, brain, and the process. So is it worth it? I've definitely known people who think that sports are their ticket to an affordable education and that they'll get a scholarship in order to attend college. To that, I ask folks with this mindset to listen carefully what Bobby and others have to say about just how much time you actually have to get the education that you think you're going to get and how much of your ability to pay for that education is in control of people whose priorities for you skew far heavier towards sports than they do for education. They control the scholarship that gives you that education, and if, like Bobby, you try and choose academics over athletics, your scholarship could hang in the balance. They could take away from you that which is giving you your ability to attend college, and then you're left with nothing. No sports, no academics, nada. And if you're injured, now you're worse off than you were before you took that scholarship. So a quick stats check straight from the NCAA. Of the 1,093,234 high school football players, 6.5% will play football in college. 
and that's all divisions, mind you. And of those, 1.6% or 255 people per year will go pro. Let's assume you probably won't go pro. And if you're going to go to college just to go pro, consider these figures and listen to what Bobby has to say. Beware of the lack of rights you really have as a student athlete. The lack of care the university may actually show you once you're no longer a viable contributor to the team. And if you're going to play college sports just so that you can pay for your education, well, maybe think about another route. Financial aid programs at schools all over the country will supply you with lots, if not all, the financial assistance you need to attend college, especially if you're among the 80% that Bobby mentioned who are under the poverty line. I still can't wrap my head around that stat. If you end up with some student debt as a result of having to get a great education, that seems a whole lot more worth it to me than a lifetime of serious medical conditions as a result of doing what you needed in the name of getting an education. I've long harbored some seriously conflicting emotions about the fact that I love USC football and college football in general, not to mention professional football. It eats me up that the NCAA and the NFL both seem to be totally morally bankrupt institutions in complete denial about something that is making their players' and employees' lives measurably, obviously worse. They're burying their heads in the sand to protect their money. There just doesn't seem to be another way around it. And I think it's because of people like me, people who, in spite of the horrors they learn from people like Bob and how they're treated in college about chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE, which led to suicide for a Trojan and Hall of Famer Junior Seau and unfortunately generated one of the greatest shames in the history of sports when the NFL Hall of Fame would not let his daughter, Sydney give a speech on his behalf during his induction out of some sort of fear of what she might actually say about the circumstances of his death. It's in spite of these indefensible acts, we still turn on the TV and leave it on all day on Sunday, check it Thursday, Monday, and check our phones every 10 seconds to see how our fantasy teams are doing. All right, rant over. If you think I'm wrong or right or wanted to say so or have anything else to add, please call, leave a message for me to play on the air, 503-86-CRUSH, or send me a tweet at CrushPod. Let's keep the conversation going. You can watch the speech that Sydney say I would have given at crushpodcast.com on the uh, story page with uh, Bobby's interview. All right, that's it. Thanks for being here. I'm going to go and take a long look in the mirror now. Ugh. See you next time.